Okay, uh, well, Jim's sort of um, talked about the sort of rise of the, T the TUC in the interwar period, you know, and, and Citrine finishes in 1945, doesn't he? Um, and, and a period when the TUC, the trade unions generally have enormous prestige coming out of the Second World War. Um, and I, I thought I'd start, and in a sense what I'm going to do is look at the period when the trade unions enter a period of crisis. Uh, which is another change period, and that's I've subtitled my thing, George Woodcock, the 1960s industrial relations crisis, the collapse of British social democracy and the road to Thatcherism. Because I think what happened with the trade unions was absolutely central to Mrs Thatcher coming to power uh, and so forth. Um, I think one, one of the points, I, the sort of sociological background to this would be an argument that I've made uh, that trade union power in Britain rested on a sort of diamond uh, of support. That support had sort of, as a diamond, it has four elements, you know. The support of employees, the support of employers, the support, the support, the support of the state. And in the post-war period, we're talking about both political parties and above all the support of public opinion and I think that's the framework we should look at this this sort of post-war period and so I think this is an interesting quote uh, from uh, from uh, George Woodcock uh, in the actually the, the front of the 1968 centenary history of the TUC which I've got at home uh, the TUC's assertion of a right to share in the government of the nation inevitably involved an obligation to assume some share of responsibility in implementing policies agreed with governments, which tests its capacity for leadership more se severely than at any time since 1926. And I think that's a good, that, that sums up the sort of dilemmas that he was dealing with at that time. Okay, there's a picture of him. Uh, trade union career, quite interesting how uh, these people stay so long at the TUC. You know, he's there, he, he starts in 1936 as head of research. Jim sent me a very interesting extract from Citrine's memoir of the interview with Hugh Dalton. Uh, and, you know, what a smart, what a smart guy uh, Woodcock was when he challenged Hugh Dalton on economics in the interview. Um, so he's head of research and economics, 1946 assistant general secretary, 1960 general secretary. Uh, I've put nearly 56 because I think that's quite an important thing to come back to. He, he arrives rather late into the key position. And then obviously, and then he moves on to be the chair of the Commission for Industrial Relations established by the Donovan Commission, which is a very short lived, that's two years basically. Um, a little bit on his background. Um, born Bamber Bridge, Lancashire, which doesn't mean much to any of you, but my, my parents both come from very near there, so it's always, always quite intrigued me. Um, lived at, it's quite nice if you're a, a sort of social democratic industry, uh, trade union league to so actually die in 1979. You've sort of <laughs> seen the span of the period. <laughs> Good time to leave. Um, uh, interesting in, in terms of what Jim was saying about an autodidact, but not your, not your stereotypical non-conformist autodidact, but from a, a Roman Catholic sort of background, and a really rather brilliant autodidact. And I, I don't think I'm exaggerating here. Um, 
because you know we'll come to it in a minute but you'll see you know he's pretty outstanding uh, academically he's a cotton weaver at the age of 13 an official in the, in the weavers union at the age of 20. One, well, this is a sort of side note. I think one of the interesting things about these post-war um, TUC leaders is that they all come from these small union, unions. You know? They don't come from the big battalions. You know, so Tucson before him comes from the dyers' union. Uh, Feather after him comes from the shop workers' union. I think that's, that's quite interesting in itself, and probably reflects on the, how much power they have, perhaps as well. Um, you know, the usual sort of route, ILP, Labour Party. But then it's interesting, he gets a TUC scholarship to Ruskin College, which is not that unusual. What's probably more unusual, he gets a first at Oxford in PPE, which uh, as someone who got a second, you know, I, I, I respect <laughs> that, you know. <laughs> uh, and that's a pretty impressive, and he, he's more than that, he goes on to do postgraduate research. So, and I think it is, is Oxford Dictionary of National Biography thing says he's to the TUC's first unif university trained intellectual, and a pretty impressive intellectual by all accounts. I just thought of putting, why do trade union general secretaries matter? Um, I think there's a lot of Marxist and particularly sentimental socialist history which has very little time for trade union bureaucrats, people like these people. Um, and it's, it is quite interesting, I was talking to Keith Gilder about the Dictionary of Labour Biography and I asked him, oh have you got an entry? And there's no Dictionary of Ent Labour Biography entry for citrine, chusen, woodcock or feather. <laughs> now, it's quite astonishing when you think about it, you know, it's the whole post-war, well not the whole post-war, it's the, the history of the TUC since the First World War, isn't it? Um, but I think these people are important, I mean obviously I'm coming at it from a particular angle, but I think the, the, the real issue for post-war British trade unions when you look back on it was to make social democracy work. It wasn't to overthrow capitalism or anything like that, it was to make social democracy work. Uh, and these people are crucial to understanding that problem. Um, and, and you know, in that sense, the TUC is crucial. And if you look at, if you read Middlemass's classic book, 1979 book, uh, he talks about corporate bias, and he talks about the fact that, you know, forms of corporatism start after the First World War or during the First World War, actually. And Citroen and people are, are already having high-level meetings with government and stuff like that. But I think what's striking. If you compare, and I've, I've had this argument with, with uh, European academics when they talk as if Britain's always been a liberal market economy. So hang on, we had centralised national bargaining, we had strong corporatist relationships with the government right back in the 1920s when you hadn't even thought about them. You know? um, but I think what's interesting about Britain is, is that we, we also had sort of weak national institutions. You know, so it, a lot of this stuff was informal. There were no organisations to mediate it and stuff. And obviously, after the, after the Second World War, you've got this new economic challenge of full employment. So how does free collective bargaining work in a period of full employment? And I think that sums up a lot of the problems that follow, really. And I think they're problems that have not gone away, actually. So, um, and, and the interesting thing about Woodcock, in that sense, uh, he's a joint architect of a, a whole set of key new industrial relations institutions under the, the 64-70 Labour government. I think it's rather, it's, people are rather prone to sort of scorn that government. I think uh, what that government was trying was quite important. Uh, I think they were trying to move us towards a sort of uh, 
continental social democratic types framework. Um, now that Woodcock was involved in, in the 1963 when the Tories created the tripartite National Economic Development Council. Labour adds the Department of Economic Affairs headed by George Brown. Then we get the 1965, um, we get the National Board of Price and Incomes to support incomes policy. Uh, we, and we get the TUC Incomes Policy Commission. We get the formation of a united CBI. Uh, and then we get the Donovan Commission to look at the issues of, of reform in workplace relations. So I, I see this as a very sort of very cohesive reform programme uh, under the Wilson government. And in that sense, Woodcock is the right man in the right place at the right time. Um, this is a key social democratic moment in my view. Uh, one of my arguments I've made in a recent article is that the, one of the problems in Britain, particularly in the trade unions, was that there weren't enough social democrats. There were quite a lot of sort of, uh, sort of Marxian leftist type people and on one side. On the other side, there was a lot of sort of uh, pragmatic sort of market bargaining people, but there weren't very many visionary social democratic type people who thought about the long-term future of the trade union movement and how it fitted into modern society. And I, I would see, you know, Woodcock very much in that, in, that, in that frame. He supported Keynes's managed capitalism, very knowledgeable about Keynesian economics, uh, supported corporatist relations with the state, supported two key areas of uh, social democratic thinking in this period, incomes policy and productivity bargaining, tried to make those work, uh, wanted to modernise the structure and role of British trade unions in what I would see as a broadly social democratic direction. Uh, I think the, bit, the first quote I always remember when I was doing my MA in industrial relations was structure is a function of purpose, I think it was George Woodcock, but everyone used to quote. Um, not that it led anywhere, probably, but um, even so. Um, yeah, oh, and there's a certain tragedy at this, because his, his TUC career ends with... with uh, he, he, he leaves the scene and Vic Feather takes over um, during the controversy of him around in place, in, strife, in place of Strife, which is then followed short, fairly shortly afterwards by the Conservative 1971 Industrial Relations Act. So I think the, the question about people like uh, Woodcock is, why did UKIR trade union reform fail and how far was he responsible? Was, was it to do with George Woodcock? Because in some senses, I think he'd, he'd achieved quite a lot in creating institutions that should have been the basis for something like the Swedish or the German type model. Uh, what do others say about him? I mean, I just looked at some um, memoirs and things like this. It's quite interesting. I mean, there's a sort of quite a consensus that he, he, he's a sort of contradictory type figure. On the one hand, everyone recognises he's very smart. There's also a suggestion but he, that he's lazy. There's a suggestion that he's arrogant and not very good at politics, that he's not very good at actually putting people together uh, you know, on the general council and stuff like that. There's a, a wide recognition that he's quite visionary, also a sense that he's rather pessimistic, that he, he, he kind of gets overwhelmed by the problems, and also that he's probably, partly because he arrives a little bit late in the day, slightly exhausted, and I can imagine why he might be. 
Um, and just a few quotes here. Sid Wheel gives you the sort of looking back nostalgically from the early 80s. Woodcock had a vision of taking the TUC out of Trafalgar Square into the corridors of Whitehall, where union leaders would have the authority and the power to get things done. Uh, but George Brown, who, who was very complimentary about him in his memoirs, about you know working together with him and the head of uh, the CBI to create these institutions, he uh, says, but Woodcock was in favour of income's policy, but he's a most up and down fellow. Even in his most enthusiastic moments, he sounds rather like an undertaker. <laughs> he now saw all the snags and impossibilities. The sort of pessimism, pessimism of the intellect starts to affect pessimism of the will as well. Uh, Hugh Clegg, who I've been doing work on over the last decade or so, um, a very interesting, I mean, he's, he's on Donovan with um, Woodcock, uh, so they're, they're working quite closely together, and he's asked in an interview by Brian Harrison in 1987, was there any direct input from Woodcock? None at all. Of course, he took responsibility for the TUC's evidence, I suppose, but it was all Len Murray. He was a very lazy man, George Woodcock very ready to take credit for other people's work. So you're getting this little conflicting, quite interesting, and there's a lot of scope. I mean, there's a large number of papers at Warwick, which I haven't looked at. There's a, large, there's a lot of scope to go and look at him in more detail. But there is this sort of conflicted type character you, you've got. So the road to Thatcherism, why did Woodcock and TUCIR reform fail? Well. I've, I've, I mean, I've got my own view on this, and this, uh, there's three sort of things I'd point out here. I think there's a general view that Woodcock came to the job five years too late. Now, that's part, that part, that you can make that a personal argument about whether he had the energy. <laughs> Certainly at that age of 56, I would have had the energy to do that. Um, <laughs> someone who'd retired at 60. Um, but... Um, I think there's another side to it, is that Woodcock served under uh, Victor Tewson for 13 years. And I think perhaps, again, it's something that's worth people, someone doing some research on, is there's a, there's a period of enormous inertia at the TUC after the Second World War. I think there's a sense under Tewson, the, the sense that Tewson uh, didn't really do much, didn't try and create a new sort of social democratic model that would work. And so when it, only when things start breaking down in the 1960s do people start trying to fix it sort of thing. Well, I suppose as a historian you can say, well, that's always going to be the case. People don't, you know, in the 1950s, people didn't think there was much of a problem. They had strong centralised national bargaining. It seemed to be going okay and so forth. But I think that's, a, that's an interesting question about was the problem not Woodcock in, in the 1960s, but Tewson, in, in the 1950s and, and so forth. This, the second thing is the, you know, the structure of British trade unions, which you know, continental people from like Germany and stuff always are astonished by. You know, trade, the, 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 the weakness of the TUC, the fragmented sectional character of unions and collective bargaining, particularly from the late 50s onwards as national bargaining starts to break down, more and more bargaining shifts into the workplace. Um, and trade union leaders have less and less control, what, you know, discussions about wages drift and the problems of inflation and unofficial strikes and all that sort of stuff. And it's clear to me, looking across, across the water to places like Germany, Austria, um, Sweden, that social democracy as a stable form 
requires strong disciplined peak bodies. Uh, and you know, unless the TUC could turn itself into that, it wasn't going to work in the long run. Um, and a good example, obviously, is, is LO in, in Sweden. But I think there's another part. I mean, since uh, left-wing people were always denigrating the right of the labour movement, I think I'm going to denigrate the left of the labour movement a little bit here. Because I think it needs saying that the politics, there's a, there's a politics of the trade union movement at this time. And it's, it's the destructive role of the broad left, which makes these reforms that people like Woodcock, things like incomes policy, productivity bargaining, they make it impossible to deliver these reforms. They make it impossible to reform the British trade union movement. Uh, it's a, a mixture of militant collective bargaining, militant free collective bargaining, with sort of socialist slogans about sometime in the future we're going to have a planned economy. And the fact that in the post-war period, the only thing that isn't planned is, is wages. You know, you've got all the other forms of planning in place, but that, that element is left out. Uh, and that's why even Bevanite people like Barbara Castle come up against this problem, because they'd like to see a more planned type economy. So I think if you're going to really understand, and particularly when you look at the two key figures who, who are actually running the major unions, as opposed to the TUC, uh, Jack Jones and Hugh Scanlon, that's a major factor for why this doesn't work. Now I've just put the I've just put up a, the title of a recent talk, which I, I'm not actually I don't know what she said, uh, but this is a title of the TUC General Secretary. The future after Brexit. She was in Glasgow. She was doing a, a lecture. Trade unions and the Scandinavian model of social democracy. And I think it's quite interesting that that, that title is very, you know, it almost follows the thinking of people like Woodcock. It's the same sort of idea coming round and round again. I think the problem with that idea uh, now is that I think that boat sailed in 1979. You know, I mean, we've got, um, what is it, 25% union membership now, less than 30% collective bargaining coverage, we've got very little collective bargaining coverage in the private sector, as I said by the gentleman from the TUC this morning. We've got 8% um, manufacturing employment, you know, a lot of these policies were, a lot of social democracy was built around strong sort of manufacturing, manual work economies. So I do wonder if that, uh, that boat has sailed. Um, I also, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not impressed by recent arguments that you can sort of conscript people into trade unions or that you can conscript, conscript employers into new forms of sexual bargaining. Um, I think if you're looking at a story and you think Thatcherism arrived because social democratic, I, I, to use Brian Harrison, he's written the one of the big history, Oxford histories of the post-war period, he argues that social democratic had been tested to destruction, is his term. It, all these things have been tried, they didn't work, and that's why Mrs. Uh, Thatcher came to power. And I, I think it's, it's uh, because of the bias of a lot of industrial relations historians, I don't think the role of the left in this has been looked at. The way in which they undermine incomes, policy, productivity, bargaining, other forms of industrial relations before. Um, my, minor, my final thought is, I, I, when I started my career, I thought people learn from history and you sort of develop, you know, movements. And I tend to think things just go around in circles now. 
Uh, and so I, I put the end with a partnership. I spent, as an academic, spent the last 20 years arguing for partnership. It seems to have gone out of fashion now. Somehow I think it's going to have to come back. So. Okay.